You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Prose Pastels 5, The Passing of Aphrodite In all the lands of Valerian, from mountain valleys rimmed with unmelting snow, to the great cliffs of sand whose reflex darkens a sleepy, tepid sea, were lit, as of old, the green and amethyst fires of summer. Spices were on the wind that mountaineers had met in the high glaciers, and the eldest wood of cypress, frowning on a sky-clear bay, was illumined by scarlet orchids. But the heart of the poet, Faniol, was an urn of black jade overfraught by love with sodden ashes, and because he wished to forget for a time the mockery of myrtles, Faniol walked alone in the waste bordering upon Alarion, in a place that great fires had blackened long ago, and which knew not the pine or the violet, the cypress or the myrtle. There as the day grew old he came to an unsailed ocean, whose waters were dark and still under the falling sun, and bore not the memorial voices of other seas, and Faniol paused and lingered upon the ashen shore, and dreamt a while of that sea whose name is Oblivion. Then from beneath the westering sun, whose bleak light was prone on his forehead, a barge appeared and swiftly drew to the land, albeit there was no wind, and the oars hung idly on the foamless wave, and Faniol saw that the barge was wrought of ebony, fretted with curious anaglyphs, and carved with luxurious forms of gods and beasts, of satyrs and goddesses and women, and the figurehead was a black eros, with full unsmiling mouth and implacable sapphire eyes averted, as if intent upon things not lightly to be named or revealed. Upon the deck of the barge were two women, one pale as the northern moon, and the other swart as equatorial midnight. But both were clad imperially, and bore the mien of goddesses, or of those who dwell near to the goddesses, without word or gesture, they regarded Faniol, and marveling he inquired, What seek ye? Then with one voice that was like the voice of Hesperian airs among palms at evening twilight in the fortunate isles, they answered, saying, We wait the goddess Aphrodite, who departs in weariness and sorrow from Alarion, and from all the lands of this world of petty loves and pettier mortalities. Thou, because thou art a poet, and hast known the great sovereignty of love, shall behold her departure. But they, the men of the court, the marketplace, and the temple, shall receive no message nor sign of her going forth, and will scarcely dream that she is gone. Now, O Faniol, the time, the goddess, and the going forth are at hand. Even as they ceased, one came across the desert, and her coming was a light on the far hills. And where she trod the lengthening shadows shrunk, and the grey waste put on the purple asphodels and the deep verdure it had worn when those queens were young, that now are a darkening legend and a dust of mummia. Even to the shore she came and stood before Faniol, while the sunset greatened, filling sky and sea with a flush as of new-blown blossoms, or the inmost rose of that coiling shell which was consecrate to her in old time. Without robe or circlet or garland, crowned and clad only with the sunset, 
fair with the dreams of man, but fairer yet than all dreams. Thus she waited, smiling tranquilly. Who is life or death, despair or rapture, vision or flesh, to gods and poets and galaxies unknowable. But filled with a wonder that was also love, or much more than love, the poet could find no greeting. Farewell, O Faniol, she said, and her voice was the sighing of remote waters, the murmur of waters, moon withdrawn, forsaking not without sorrow a proud island tall with palms. Thou hast known me and worshipped all thy days till now, but the hour of my departure is come. I go, and when I am gone thou shalt worship still and shalt not know me. For the destinies are thus, and not forever to any man, to any world, or to any god, is it given to possess me wholly. Autumn and spring will return when I am past, the one with yellow leaves, the other with yellow violets. Birds will haunt the renewing myrtles, and many little loves will be thine. Not again to thee or to any man will return the perfect vision and the perfect flesh of the goddess. Ending thus, she stepped from that ashen strand to the dark prow of the barge. And even as it had come, without wafture or wind or movement of oar, the barge put out on a sea covered with the fallen, fading petals of sunset. Quickly it vanished from view, while the desert lost those ancient asphodels, and the deep of verdure it had worn again for a little. Darkness having conquered Alarion, came slow and furtive on the path of Aphrodite. Shadows mustered immeasurably to the gray hills, and the heart of the poet Faniol was an urn of black jade, overfraught by love with sodden ashes. End of section 10, Prose Pastels 5「The Epiphany of Death » dedicated to H. P. Lovecraft. I find it peculiarly difficult to express the exact nature of the sentiment which Tomeron had always evoked in me. However, I am sure that the feeling never partook at any time of what is ordinarily known as friendship. It was a compound of unusual aesthetic and intellectual elements, and was somehow closely allied in my thoughts with the same fascination that has drawn me ever since early childhood toward all things that are remote in space and time, or which have about them the irresolvable twilight of antiquity. Somehow Tomeron seemed never to belong to the present, but one could readily have imagined him as living in some bygone age. About him there was nothing whatever of the lineaments of our own period, and he even went so far as to affect in his costume an approximation to the garments that were worn several centuries ago. His complexion was extremely pale and cadaverous, and he stooped heavily from poring over ancient tomes and no less ancient maps. He moved always with the slow, meditative pace of one who dwells among far-off reveries and memories, and he spoke often of people and events and ideas that have long been forgotten. For the most part, he was apparently unheedful of present things, and I felt that for him the huge city of Ptolemides in which we both dwelt with all its manifold clamor and tumult, was little more than a labyrinth of painted vapors. Oddly enough, there was a like vagueness in the attitude of others towards Tomeron, and though he had 
always been accepted without question as a representative of the noble and otherwise extinct family from which he claimed descent, nothing appeared to be known about his actual birth and antecedents. With two servants who were both deaf-mutes, who were very old and who likewise wore the raiment of a former age, he lived in the semi-ruinous mansion of his ancestors, where, it was said, none of the family had dwelt for many generations. There he pursued the occult and recondite studies that were so congenial to his mind, and there at certain intervals I was wont to visit him. I cannot recall the precise date and circumstances of the beginning of my acquaintance with Tomeron, though I come of a hardy line that is noted for the sanity of its constitution, my faculties have been woefully shaken by the horror of the happening with which that acquaintance ended. My memory is not what it was, and there are certain lacunae for which my readers must contrive to forgive me. The only wonder is that my powers of recollection have survived at all, beneath the hideous burden they have had to bear. For, in a more than metaphoric sense, I have been as one condemned to carry with him at all times and in all places the loathsome incubus of things long dead and corrupt. I can readily recall, however, the studies to which Tomeron had devoted himself. The lost demonian volumes from Hyperborea and Mu and Atlantis, with which his library shelves were heaped to the ceiling, and the queer charts, not of any land that lies above the surface of the earth, on which he poured by perpetual candlelight. I shall not speak of these studies, for they would seem too fantastic and too macabre for credibility. And that which I have to relate is incredible enough in itself. I shall speak, however, of certain strange ideas with which Tomeron was much preoccupied, and concerning which he so often discoursed to me in that deep, guttural, and monotonous voice of his, that had the reverberation of unsounded caverns in its tones and cadences. He maintained that life and death were not the fixed conditions that people commonly believe them to be, that the two realms were often intermingled in ways not readily discerned and had penumbral borderlands, that the dead were not always dead, nor the living, as such terms are habitually understood. But the manner in which he spoke of those ideas was extremely vague and general, and I could never induce him to specify his meaning or to proffer some concrete illustration that would render it intelligible to a mentality such as mine, that was unused to dealing in the cobwebs of abstraction. Behind his words there hovered, or seemed to hover, a legion of dark, amorphous images that I could never formulate or depict to myself in any way, till the fatal denouement of our descent into the catacombs of Ptolemides. I have already said that my feeling for Tomeron was never anything that could be classified as friendship, but even from the first I was well aware that Tomeron had a curious fondness for me, a fondness whose nature I could not comprehend, and with which I could hardly even sympathize. Though he fascinated me at all times, there were occasions when my interest was not unalloyed with a sense of actual repulsion. At whiles his pallor was too cadaverous, too suggestive of a fungi that have grown in the dark, or of leprous bones by moonlight, and the stoop of his shoulders conveyed to my brain the idea that they bore a burden of centuries through which no man could conceivably have lived. He aroused always a certain awe in me, 
and the awe was sometimes mingled with an indeterminate fear. I do not remember how long our acquaintance had continued, but I do remember that he spoke with increasing frequency toward the end of those bizarre ideas at which I have hinted. Also, I felt that he was troubled about something, for he often looked at me with a mournful gleam in his hollow eyes, and sometimes he would speak with peculiar stress of the great regard that he had for me. And one night he said, Theolus, the time is coming when you must know the truth, must know me as I am, and not as I have been permitted to seem. There is a term to all things, and all things are obedient to inexorable laws. I would that it were otherwise, but neither I nor any man, among the living or among the dead, can lengthen at will the term of any state or condition of being, or alter the laws that decree such conditions. Perhaps it was well that I did not understand him, and that I was unable to attach much importance to his words or to the singular intentness of his bearing as he uttered them. For a few more days I was spared the knowledge which I now carry. Then one evening Tomeron spoke thus, I am now compelled to ask an odd favor of you, which I hope you will grant me, in consideration of our long friendship. The favor is that you accompany me this very night to those vaults of my family which lie in the catacombs of Ptolemides. Though much surprised by the request, and not altogether pleased, I was nevertheless unable to deny him. I could not imagine the purpose of such a visit as the one proposed, but as was my wont, I forbore to interrogate Tomeron, and merely told him that I would accompany him to the vaults, if such were his desire. "'I thank you, Theolus, for this proof of friendship,' he replied earnestly. "'Believe me, I am loath to ask it, but there has been a certain deception, an odd misunderstanding which cannot go on any longer. Tonight you will know the truth.' Carrying torches, we left the mansion of Tomeron, and sought the ancient catacombs of Ptolemides, which lie beyond the walls and have long been disused, for there is now a fine necropolis in the very heart of the city. The moon had gone down beyond the desert that encroaches toward the catacombs, and we were forced to light our torches long before we came to the subterranean adits, for the rays of Mars and Jupiter in a sodden and funereal sky were not enough to illumine the perilous path we followed among mounds and fallen obelisks and broken graves. At length we discovered the dark and weed-choked entrance of the charnels, and here Tomeron led the way with the swiftness and surety of footing that bespoke long familiarity with the place. Entering, we found ourselves in a crumbling passage where the bones of dilapidated skeletons were scattered amid the rubble that had fallen from the sides and roof. A choking stench of stagnant air and of age-old corruption made me pause for a moment, but Tomeron scarcely appeared to perceive it, for he strode onward, lifting his torch and beckoning me to follow. We traversed many vaults in which moldy bones and verdigree-eaten sarcophagi were piled about the walls or strewn where desecrating thieves had left them in bygone years. The air was increasingly dank, chill and miasmal, and mephitic shadows crouched or swayed before our torches in every niche and corner. Also, as we went onward, the walls became more ruinous, and the bones we saw on every hand 
or greener with the mold of time. At last we rounded a sudden angle of the low cavern we were following. Here we came to vaults that evidently belonged to some noble family, for they were quite spacious, and there was but one sarcophagus in each vault. "'My ancestors and family lie here,' said Tomeron. We reached the end of the cavern and were confronted by a blank wall. At one side was the final vault, in which an empty sarcophagus stood open. The sarcophagus was wrought of the finest bronze and was richly carven. Tomeron paused before the vault and turned to me. By the flickering, uncertain light, I thought that I saw a look of strange and unaccountable distress on his features. "'I must beg you to withdraw for a moment,' he said, in a low and sorrowful voice. "'Afterwards you can return.' Surprised and puzzled, I obeyed his request and went slowly back along the cavern for some distance. Then I returned to the place where I had left him. My surprise was heightened when I found that he had extinguished his torch and had dropped it on the threshold of the final vault. Also, Tomeron himself was not visible anywhere. Entering the vault, since there was no other place where he could have hidden himself, I looked about for him, but the room was empty. At least I deemed it empty till I looked again at the richly carven sarcophagus, and saw that it was now tenanted, for a cadaver lay within, shrouded in a winding sheet of a sort that had not been used for centuries in Ptolemides. I drew nigh to the sarcophagus, and peering into the face of the cadaver, I saw that it bore a fearful and strange resemblance to the face of Tomeron, though it was bloated and puffed with the adiposeer of death, and was purple with the shadows of decay, as after long ages in a charnel air. And looking again, I saw that it was indeed Tomeron. I would have screamed aloud with the horror that came upon me, but my lips were benumbed and frozen, and I could only whisper Tomeron's name. But as I whispered it, the lips of the cadaver seemed to part, and the tip of its tongue protruded between them. And I thought that the tip trembled, as if Tomeron were about to speak and answer me. But gazing more closely, I saw that the trembling was merely the movement of worms as they twisted up and down and to and fro and sought to crowd each other. From Tomeron's tongue. End of section eleven. The Epiphany of Death.